Hello and welcome to the Qubit Guy podcast brought to you by Classic, the company that's taking quantum software to a higher level. My name is Yuval and my guest today is Kirk Bresnicker, Chief Architect at Hewlett Packard Lab. In this extended conversation, Kirk and I talk about when HPE will offer quantum computing services, the time and place for quantum computing in the enterprise IT architecture, and much more. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please let us know how we did by emailing hello at classic.io. That's hello at classic.io. Hello, Kirk, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks. It's great to be here. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, so my name is Kirk Bresnicker, and I am the chief architect at Hewlett Packard Labs, part of Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Uh, it sounds like a big title, but uh, really what I get to do is to look over our entire disruptive development portfolio at Hewlett Packard Labs and the technologies and the technologists that we're uh, bringing to bear. And then I get to have a series of conversations, conversations inside of our business groups, what we think is coming next just over the brow of the hill, but also conversations with partners, with customers, uh, with policymakers around the world, looking at that intersection of technology and opportunity, uh, thinking only about the possibilities of technology, but uh, what are those ramifications? What should we be preparing for? How can society make best use of emerging technologies? Is quantum one of the emerging technologies you get asked about? <laughs> you know, uh, there, there's usually when customers come to our innovation centers and uh, they see I'm wearing the, the Hewlett Packard Labs T-shirt uh, and they say, oh, OK, so you're from labs. You know, then what I what I really want to know about is uh, and they'll usually ask about two things. They'll ask about AI and specifically about AI ethics. Uh, and one of my side hustles is leading the working group that has drafted our AI ethics. One of my side hustles is leading the uh, global AI ethics principles teams here at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So I get to have a little nice conversation about that. Uh, but the second one is quantum. Uh, definitely, uh, they want to know, and they usually want to know one of two. They want to know two things. They want to know when. When is quantum going to be material to my computational landscape and to where? Where in what I need to do is quantum going to be an advantage? Or you know, maybe the other way to look at it is when am I going to be surprised because one of my competitors has utilized this technology? And so that's, that's really an interesting part of the conversations we get to have is to talk about uh, their computational landscape, um, in because of uh, because thank you, uh, Professor Shore, because of your work, we have uh, the cyber uh, security it becomes part of that conversation. So all of them, you know, it, it's been it's been really interesting for us to begin to peel back and talk about the potential advantage we all uh, are working towards with quantum computing uh, and the acceleration of specific kinds of workloads. It also leads into the broader conversation about, okay, uh, we are heading into those last best Moore's law scaling transistors. Um, so what is that whole range of accelerators and novel ways to approach problems, some of which are uh, 
uh, we're really anticipating potential for quantum. Some are ones where, you know, we now it's probably not going to be advantage, but we still need to understand what's next. What can we do to continue to improve performance, improve efficiency, and most importantly nowadays, improve sustainability. Uh, so we can actually use these technologies and know that we are going to make the world a better place by using them rather than uh, worry that we're using a technology to make a decision and then we find out uh, the decisions that we're left are worse off once we've used the technology than before. If customers ask you when and where, I would love to know the answers to that as well. So <laughs> when and where would quantum computing be useful in your opinion? So the first the first question I'll always ask them is, uh, you know, do you have any chemists? Do you have any physics physicists? Do you have people who care about the behavior of physical systems at the quantum level, uh, at the you know at the at the Planck distance, uh, you know, in inside of the molecule, uh, inside of the atomic shell of uh, of an atom? And if the answer is yes, and I'm like, well, you should probably be beginning to understand and comprehend these things uh, sooner rather than later. You know, if, but if there's, you know, an enterprise customer, then we'll start to talk about potentially areas uh, like optimization or uh, some aspects of, of next generation uh, artificial intelligence. And if they are interested and want to understand those, then uh, we'll have that conversation. We will certainly also have the conversation about cybersecurity, uh, about, um, you know, do you have information that if someone was to, uh, was to get your encrypted information today, uh, is that information going to be still valuable and material, something that you need to protect in 10 years or 20 years or 40 years? Um, trying to ascertain, you know, where in their risk profile, um, the, uh, you know, the recent announcement we had from uh, the NIST team here in the United States of the first four uh, candidate algorithms for post-quantum cryptography. And, you know, you know adopting a new cryptographic uh, scheme is no small feat, and it has a big price tag. And it's also something that you generally have to do in partnership, because unless you're uh, really concerned about having very safe conversations with yourself, uh, it has to be a conversation that's between multiple people. So how do you begin to plan out and understand in your rate, if you're in a regulated business, um, you know, something like the FIPS information processing standards, that might be something that you're keenly aware of and might expect to, to need to take action over the next couple years. You know, 2024 might be when we see some uh, FIPS incorporating these NIST recommendations. So I think all those things will end up uh, being part of the conversation for us to have. How much do you want to get involved now? And uh, or would it be better to let some of the technologies settle out, let some of the applications evolve, uh, let people understand. Uh, but it's a uh, it certainly is a, an interesting case. And, and frankly, it's also not just on the people on the teams who on, and partners and customers who want to uh, you know consume quantum technologies, consume the applications that really can only be possible with quantum advantage uh, once it's it's feasible. It's also, uh, you know, nations and regions who want to get in on the supply side of quantum. They want to be developing and uh, creating quantum technologies, whether it's quantum computation, quantum communications, or quantum sensing. And they see this as a a brand new opportunity. It's kind of a level playing field. You know, there's not any one region or uh, 
country or com certainly not company who has an advantage right now. Uh, and so that means that there's an opportunity for everyone. Uh, and who wouldn't want it, who wouldn't want it to have been, you know, in the lead when we went into semiconductors and into transistorized systems and into integrated circuits. And then you see all the benefits. Certainly we've all benefited globally from that technology, but it's a different kind of return on investment when you are on the supply side of these technologies as opposed to the, the just the, the consumption side. Still incredibly uh, beneficial, raise uh, so many people's uh, economic uh, potential globally, but uh, it's also nice to be on the supply side. When a new computer architecture or a new computing way is introduced, it could find its way into multiple places in the enterprise. It could be uh, in my pocket, it could be on my desktop, it could be at the edge, could be at the data center, the supercomputing center. Where do you see quantum computing fitting in the uh, enterprise-wide IT infrastructure? And so I think for us, it, it, it's most likely to come in first as an accelerator uh, that is going to be, and whether that's an accelerator into a supercomputer, uh, accelerator into a uh, enterprise decision information system, I think that's, that'll depend upon uh, the applications. You know, am I trying to accelerate um, a bit of quantum chemistry? Uh, am I, or maybe the, the better way to say it, am I tired of pouring uh, contents from test tubes uh, into beakers uh, and doing uh, experimental chemistry? Or would I rather do simulated experimental chemistry? Uh, you know, the same way that, you know, we used to, uh, we used to smash uh, cars into walls to see what was going to happen uh, to make sure that they were safe. Uh, and now it's like, who would who would smash a perfectly car in a wall when I could just run, you know, an in, almost nearly infinite number of simulations? So, I think that's the, that's sort of that question about back to applications. Are you are you seeking uh, what Professor Feynman originally set us down the down the path here? Uh, on trying to understand the quantum behavior of systems and physical systems and materials. Um, and then I could certainly see, you know, wanting to incorporate quantum as an accelerator, whether that is uh, to expose it natively as an here's a simulation of a quantum system, or because I have a very hard problem and it turns out that some of the uh, quantum algorithms would be an amazing accelerator, I might underpin an existing science library with. Uh, so I think, again, that's where we might see several avenues for quantum, even in uh, quantum for quantum science sake, uh, it might be underpinning an existing science library, it might be setting up a simulation, and now finally you know, getting some amount of scale on the actual quantum mechanical uh, hardware itself, giving insight into the behavior of quantum systems that we want to engineer. Uh, so I think we might see it there. But again, that's that's different than saying, oh, here's where I want to be able to incorporate quantum because I have a business process. I want to take advantage of the ability of these quantum systems to do things like energy minimization, optimization. Uh, some of that is a little less proven. Um, I know we've had things like quantum annealers for quite some time, and and uh, there are certainly other competing non-conventional, not that but still classical physics techniques that might also give those quantum annealers a run for their money. But that's, I think, another example of, of bringing these, uh, these accelerators in and then plugging them into the enterprise, more into the enterprise business backbone, as uh, opposed to the, uh, the business of science 
that we might uh, also imagine these systems uh, really helping out. When you talk about acceleration, would I be correct in assuming that you mean accelerating things that could might take days or weeks today to hours or minutes? Or are you also talking about, I have a hundred microsecond transaction and I'll make it 25 microseconds? Well, you know, one of my favorite, uh, my favorite engineering mentors uh, was the analog, uh, analog power design engineer when I started at HP. And he said, an engineer is something who can do something do something for a nickel that would take any fool uh, a quarter. So uh, there is definitely that that shaving off of uh, of nanoseconds. Uh, anytime you can change the units uh, or change the prefix and uh, and maybe uh, half the value, then then that can be valuable. But I certainly think uh, for us, it's it is accelerating existing workloads. Um, you know, here's a workload, and I just wanted to run faster. And you know, we had an amazing experience with. Uh, with DCNE, the German National Center for Neurodegenerative Disease Research, they were doing a genomics application, um, and it was one of their critical applications. And uh, we were on a call with them, and um, we we're looking at their code, and it's on GitHub. And I open up the code on GitHub. We're having this conversation, and, and the first line in the comments was, uh, "Because it's impractical to hold a human genome in memory." And I said, well, that's interesting because uh, here at the labs, we just created a system, the, a prototype that holds 80,000 human genomes in memory. So sometimes you do need to reset people's aspirations about what is possible. Now, in the end, when working with them over a couple months, we took an application which they assumed was terminally optimized. They just could not imagine. And they almost feel like they proved themselves. It was never going to get any better than this. And that was true for conventional hardware approaches. Um, now in the matter of, uh, I think we'd spent about 150 days with them, so about five months, and we took that application. And by the time we were done, it was, done, it was running 100 times faster, 100x fast improvement. It was also using 60% less electricity, which was very material to how they were able to pursue their science. Uh, and, but the, the most amazing thing about it was it didn't just run now in 13 seconds as opposed to you know 20 minutes um, because it only took about 10 or 13 seconds the scientists would start the start the analysis and they would they would just watch and they would watch that little wheel spin around you know 10 flips of the hourglass over. And while they're watching that happen, they're, they're, they're already thinking of the next simulation to run. So it moved them into this real time, kept them in the zone of science, as opposed to usually you hit the go button and you walk away and you do something else for 20 minutes and you come back and maybe you just wait till the end of the day, you batch up a bunch of them. So being able to change the behavior of the science with a, a novel hardware, uh, because you're able to get through this breakthrough in, in acceleration, I think that was something that told me you know, that's the same kind of question, same kind of discussion, same kind of possibility we want to have uh, with the exist with the you know with with the quantum accelerators. Trying to understand, can I take something that you're already doing and really change it so it changes your behavior? So I think that's one category. But I think there is also that category where there are things that people just have never they say well i know i could do it but you know who's got a million years to run on a supercomputer uh you know and so there are those classes of applications that we really uh, you know we might know we you know the work that's involved and then you just you just never you never even consider it as a possibility so i think that's the real for me what'll be fascinating with quantum 
isn't just when we accelerate existing applications, but when we enable and democratize access to this technology. So people who who don't, who won't even know, or perhaps they won't even care, they'll just know this is how science is done. Oh, of course I will be using this kind of an algorithm, or if it's is science or business or decision, any kind of decision making uh, that will enable people who say, you know, well, yeah, I, I've got a uh, you know a two trillion note graph, and I want to do a, I want to do an analysis on it. Well, of course I can do that. Who who couldn't do that? And I'll just type out some some code in my Jupyter notebook, and I'll hit the go button, and I won't be I will never be daunted by the scale of a cometoric explosion. And you know, for me, that's that that's where we'll know we've arrived. In the same way that you know people wouldn't uh, wouldn't bat an eye these days about assuming you know, well, of course I'm going to launch a, a cloud cloud-based application that's going to go all the way back to my core data systems and all the way out uh, to my edge systems, because that's just how we do things. We know we're cloud natives. You know, we, we are now all becoming so familiar with using AI uh, and machine learning to do incredible things like the, you know, the, the tools that we're using to communicate with each other this very minute. Um, so I think that's when we know that, that accelerators have arrived uh, when their ability to affect problems really care, people really care about is just accepted. It's just the way that we do things. And I think, so I think for me, it'll be interesting to see both things happen. One, those existing workloads uh, made faster and then made faster enough that it changes people's behavior. And then two, when you get to that other side, other side of the, you know, that, that, uh, that chasm, uh, when it just becomes the way people do things and we just all are accepting, you know, the common everyday miracle uh, that something like a quantum accelerator could provide. Let's talk a little bit about quantum and uh, quantum computing and HPE. So first for full disclosure, HPE, uh, through, I think, HP uh, Pathfinder is an investor in Classic. Um, do you know why the investment was made? Yeah, so first we'll, we'll, we'll give people a little bit of background into Pathfinder. So Pathfinder is our venture uh, capital arm at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Uh, but it's not just sort of uh, you know a general venture fund where they're just looking for uh, looking for uh, good ideas and, and getting the money. The real goal of the Pathfinder team is to find um, find innovators you know outside of outside of HPE uh, where they have a great idea. Uh, Certainly, they'll, the money doesn't hurt, but we also want to provide them is engagement and guidance and where we see a real affinity uh, between their technologies, what we can bring together, and we can imagine a real you know, successful joint future together. And so that was, um, that's the Pathfinder team. And and, um, and and I'm sure they have they have their reasons, but you know, one of the great things about being in labs is that they come to us all the time and they say, hey, you know, Kirk, we just, we, we have this company, you know, can you tell us what you think? And for me, what, what, I, why I was uh, very encouraging uh, for them to make the investment in classic is, is I think of uh, back to that question of democratization of, of access. Uh, and I think of, uh, I think of myself uh, and I think of semiconductor design. Uh, you know, I took uh, semiconductor physics, my last class I had to pass to graduate. I already had the job at HP. All I had to do was get through my semiconductor physics class, and uh, the 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 class was kind of a notorious for uh, for uh, seniors uh, not quite making it through. Uh, so I was a little a little scared. Did my work, learned what I had to learn, 
and then frankly promptly forgot about it because it turns out that I didn't really need it was it was good experience but but to actually to produce a design to produce a chip what I really needed to know was Verilog and then I had to know uh, I had to learn the tools I had to learn that EDA environment that would then allow me to design abstractly, and then it would go out, and it didn't matter which foundry we were going to, inside the company, outside the company, uh, whichever process step, the tool vendors had taken care of creating the synthesis and optimization environment. Uh, and that's more than just a clever algorithm. It is also accruing the relationships, the knowledge and relationships of all the possible uh, vendors that you wanna take this, this abstract design engineer and then make that possible for them to gain access to all the benefits and the nuances and the variations so that their design is made it up with exactly the right uh exactly the right process and then when i saw what what you guys were doing with your optimizing compiler and the conversations that you know, my first question is like have you had the relationship building conversations do you have key knowledge and can you have you set up the relationship so that regardless if i wanted to go to a superconducting qubit or a trapped ion qubit or any of the other modalities that you had already uh, begun those conversations so you weren't just optimizing in general for an ideal logical qubit you are getting the nitty-gritty about the real real qubits that we have today and what we'll have in the future and so for me that was a fantastic role for you to take on that was so much like what we saw so critical to making um, you know semiconductors continue to grow certainly we can imagine you know back in the days when people were still cutting ruby lift tape and laying out transistors in integrated circuits by hand um, you know they had that low level intimate knowledge and and then they did some amazing designs that really you know were were breathtaking in what they were able to contribute but that's not scale right that's you can't scale that number of designers with that much infinite knowledge and it also means that there has to be, there's, there's so many bottlenecks to that system. And when you can begin to clear those bottlenecks and you can let uh, high level engineering teams work more abstractly, you can then also let all the low level teams really focus exclusively on making their low level hardware and process better. And then there's you right there in the middle working out so that everyone can be super efficient uh, by themselves and then together from top to bottom we end up with a system that really scales. Excellent. So just between you and me, uh, when will HPE offer a quantum computer to its customers? So, you know, it's, it's interesting. So here at Labs, we had teams that were looking at uh, nitrogen vacancies on diamond lattice, you know, yet another qubit modality about 10 years ago. And um, that team actually uh, stopped that work voluntarily. They put it on the shelf because at the time they didn't see that path forward into uh, practical solutions that our customers really needed. Um, you know, one of the things about about Hewlett Packard Labs, you go all the way back to 1966 when Bill and Dave asked Barty Oliver to found Hewlett Packard Labs. It's always been, it hasn't been just a, a general research arm in the same way that Pathfinder is not a general venture capital arm. Uh, we always wanted to be anchored in our businesses and be that you know, one foot anchored in our current business, one eye towards uh, the horizon to see what is coming over, what te new technologies can be made available. And also, you know, occasionally it's about, it's about new business as well. Where are new areas where 
an element of Hewlett-Packard enterprise understanding and knowledge could be applied and create a new market. Um, so for us, you know, again, we, we were doing we were doing the the qubit work uh, a decade ago. Stop that. Uh, that team went on to large scale integrated photonics and has been doing great work in intercommunications and, and making the systems that are capable. Uh, if we think of the, the cyber physical system, we need to wrap around that quantum system. I think that with work like we've done now with, with Frontier and the Exascale, that's exactly where we want to go next. Uh, but you know that the question is, is going to be always customer driven. So when are our customers going to say, hey, you know what I really need to do? I have this workload. Uh, and here's uh, what I need to be able to accomplish. And uh, we would like to understand together, uh, when can we bring uh, quantum technology in for advantage? And so it's, it's gonna come back to that question of when and where. Uh, and that's why you know we've been participating over the last, really about the last 18 months, uh, trying to understand this. And I think one of the things that, that also changed over the intervening decade from, from when we were first working at this, uh, was our acquisition first of SGI and then of Cray. Uh, so adding those two uh, two companies to the uh, to already the high performance computing expertise we had at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, gave us access to a scale of supercomputing and to customers that we did not have before. Uh, so that, I think that's why it's been uh, it's been really great to to lean back into this market. Uh, and to look, you know, not, we're not going to look to go back and, and start up our, our, um, our diamond lattice work again. Uh, what we really want to do is to take advantage of all the knowledge we've gained in integration and industrialization. You thinking things like the, the wafer scale in, um, uh, AI accelerator that, uh, that we integrated at Pittsburgh Supercomputing, uh, working with our partner Cerebrus. Uh, you know, that's, you know, integration of one of these accelerators isn't just, it's, in one sense, it's about the physics. How do I even support this you know, incredibly complex device that's so unlike the rest of the IT infrastructure. And then once you've done that, then there's that cyber physical control system. How do I get uh, signals in and out uh, if it's if it's if I'm solving something by uh, you know rotating a uh, a qubit uh, a uh, a root two over pi turn to the left. Um, you know, that's uh, that's going to take some time, depending on the modality, uh, a laser pulse, uh, some microwave energy, you know, all sorts of incredible physical manipulations. So how do we turn digital problems into uh, that uh, analog uh, um, uh, manipulation. So I think there's that level. And above that, there's that that sort of data infrastructure framework. You know, here I have something that in a couple qubits can represent petabits, even zettabits of information. How do I get that information into and out of these systems? If they are so efficient, how do I how do I actually prepare the system so that we can have those incredibly efficient computational accelerators always operating at peak efficiency? And that's an infrastructure question. So that's where we are right now, trying to understand how we bring all the expertise we've gained in incorporating uh, novel accelerators into supercomputing and then look for partners, partners like yourself on the software side, partners underneath you on that hardware side, uh, and then begin to pull these things together. And then, um, you know, in some cases it's that the customer wants, they just want some qubits, they want some, they want a, a, a quantum compiler and they want it in their supercomputing center. And so I think, you know, some of those are, are some of the first um, 
customers that are coming to us and say, we want to have this. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's more because they want to be part of the development of quantum technology side. I think as these continue to mature and as applications and advantage is demonstrated, then I think we'll more likely see these integrated into uh, more general applications where customers aren't just trying to understand you know, how they participate in quantum design. They want to know how their applications can benefit from uh, quantum technologies. And I think that'll be that, that second wave. Uh, but for us, it's always going to be customer driven. What does the customer want? Uh, how can we help them achieve those goals? And especially when it's something like quantum or any of the other accelerators where it really takes a good bit of engineering uh, for these systems, not only to, to work, but to work well and to advantage. Excellent. My next to last question is, uh, you've been following quantum for a long time. What is new in your opinion that you've seen in the last six months that customers should know about? Uh, so I think that I think the I think the the NIST conversation and uh, those first uh, you know, post quantum cryptography. Um, I think the interesting thing about quantum and cryptography uh, and cybersecurity is that it has prompted a conversation that probably should have happened anyways about being resilient and understanding the risks in your uh, cryptographic supply chain. You know, where are we getting those certificates? How are we making sure that, uh, that if we had to, we could switch a, a vendor out? So I think overall, just that, that, that hygiene and thoughtfulness that um, the, uh, the potential of, of uh, cryptographic uh, uh, break in public cryptography, I think that's been a very interesting thing. And, and again, I think it's timely for people now that we're seeing some action uh, from NIST that could find its way into regulatory, um, regulatory uh, regimes that a lot of our customers have to be uh, very careful with. I think that's going to prompt an interesting discussion. But I think overall in um, in the quantum and, and I, you know, I got to go with, with you to the quantum technology uh, back in June in Boston. And it was funny because that was the first time I'd ever been to like a, a pure insider quantum uh, conference. And, um, and I wasn't sure what I was going to, what it's going to see. Was it going to be all, you know, true believers who it's like, it's all quantum and it's just a matter of time uh, or, you know, what was going to be, but I thought, um, I think it's been, um, it was really, uh, it was uh, really interesting to see one the mixture of uh people who wanted to know how to take advantage even in this midterm right how can i how can i really start to take make these technologies come together uh the number of people who are acting you know trying to form a regional quantum technology plan maybe a national quantum technology plan uh, right after I was with you in uh, Boston, I was at the World Economic Forum's Global Technology Governance Retreat in the Presidio up out here in, in California, in San Francisco. And, you know, that was one of the things that just kept coming through. Um, it's time to make a plan. It's time to consider these technologies and their ramifications and just be prepared, prepared to be prepared, prepared to be agile, prepared to have an investigation so that as these technologies mature, um, that you can you can begin to, to begin to plot your course. And, you know, it's been interesting after the, all the conversations we've been having uh, on quantum. 
you know, one of the things that people ask you back to that when question, and you even asked me it, right? And I think one of the interesting things with quantum is we're so used to, we're so used to, you know, from 1970 to now, Moore's law, where we could draw a technology graph and we could label the horizontal axis in, in time, you know, in days, weeks, months, and years. And the vertical axis we knew is always going to be increasing some increasing exponentially increasing performance uh, metric in that Moore's law case, the, the number of transistors per square unit of silicon. And I think that that just has set us up to constantly expect, oh, that's how I should understand technology evolution. It's time on the horizontal axis and it's doubling you know, on the vertical axis. And the thing about quantum right now is it's, it is, it's, it's, we're seeing constant improvement, but you know it's the kind of thing where it's going to be punctuated by breakthroughs. And so it's not going to be this nice, you know, every, every two years we're going to get twice as many transistors per unit, um, unit area. And we have worked across the world over the intervening 50 years to make that true for as long as it has been. Um, and so I think part of the thing for customer for, for people to consider is think of that horizontal axis not as time but as maybe as milestones okay when am i going to see this many qubits of this quality when am i going to see someone demonstrate an application uh where they can take advantage of 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 that first 10 that first 100 first 1000 qubits and then are really not just showing that it's that it's working is that the advantage of using it is offsetting any potential switching costs. And so I think that's one thing I would ask people to think about is don't just think, uh, don't just ask the question of when and expect the answer to come in days, minutes, weeks, or hours. Uh, ask the, that when question is like, when can I know I should be taking the next step in developing my quantum engagement strategy, okay, is it is it this application is available? Uh, is it that this many qubits are now commercially viable? Is it when this uh, piece of the puzzle uh, gets uh, some um, some really uh, good investigation and research? And so it's it's complicated, and and, and, and you know maybe someday we'll have a uh, a Moore's law equivalent for quantum, um, but uh, for right now. It is still in that really interesting, chaotic, messy period where things are getting better, but you know, there's every possibility that they might get really better really fast, and then you want to have had that conversation already with your risk management team, with your development teams. You know, how can we be prepared um, and hedge you know, for a possible quantum future? Uh, also, hedge for you know, some uh, non-quantum-inspired, uh, non-conventional, uh, but still classical physics accelerators or, you know, that or there's that also that combination you know maybe the key to making today's noisy uh, qubits really uh, become effective is going to be a breakthrough in uh, machine learning that allows uh, them to be dynamically uh, manipulated and error corrected even before they're you know they're before they're good enough to to do it natively so some some combination of these technologies might also be one of those uh, breakthroughs that we really want to say okay now it's a click. It's time to take that next step in our plan. So my very last question is, how can people get in touch with you to learn more about the work that you're doing and that HPE Labs is doing? Labs.hpe.com. You can find all of us there. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. So feel free to reach out. Excellent. So thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thanks. It was great talking with you again.